Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in. Today we have uh, a very cool episode right up my alley. It's about plasma and uh, Uranus and Voyager 2, lots of cool like space physics stuff. So hopefully a good distraction during your quarantine and you can kind of hear us nerd out and go down a bunch of bunch of weird rabbit holes. But um, yeah, I learned a lot of interesting new facts about the outer planets. And when we start talking about it, it's just crazy to think about like how much atmosphere are these planets losing per day relative to Earth? And, you know, really just dawns on me how little we know about our neighbors just down the solar system street. Yeah. So stay tuned and learn more about our neighbors. And uh, thanks for joining us. Hello and welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. My name is Charlie, your host, and I'm online with my co-host, James. James, how's it going over there in your apartment? Well, you know, Charlie, uh, morale is high. Fortunately, still being well-fed by myself. (laughs) Uh, How much like pasta and rice have you stocked up? A lot. I have enough macaroni and cheese to kill a small horse. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and fortunately, uh, the situation isn't too dire yet. Uh, not on meager rations yet so far. Uh, we haven't. Tommy hasn't succumbed to typhoid yet. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Who's Tommy? I'm trying to make an Oregon Trail. Oh, analogy, nice. But yeah, like you lose half your wagon to dysentery. Perhaps the fact that I'm talking about an imaginary person named Tommy when I live by myself. <laughs> Is, uh, I think morale might be questionable at this point. It's questionable. But the sun is shining today, so on a day-by-day basis, things are going all right. How are you doing? Yes. Uh, doing all right. I came down with a little something yesterday that kind of freaked me out, but I'm better now, so I don't think it's coronavirus. Good. But also, don't leave for two weeks. Thanks, Governor. <laughs> there was a great... <laughs> so we were recording this technically on April 1st, which is April Fool's Day. There was an excellent April Fool's joke going around where people had like fake overdubbed an announcement from the Washington state governor, Jay Inslee, saying that all school children would have to repeat their year next year. Yeah, I saw this. Just savage. Yeah, my cousin tried to get us with that. And like up in the top corner, it was like www.makeyourownnews.org or something like that. <laughs> Real fake news. Yeah, it it fell apart pretty fast, but yeah. Uh, well, today we have some real real news. Ooh, what did he bring of, in for us? It's of no consequence to our health, Thank which God. I think is probably a nice relief to be listening about. Uh, it's actually about a plasmoid that was ejected by Uranus back when Voyager two did a flyby. I was gonna say, if you wanted to get real immature with it, you could still say that this is highly related to your health and your physiology. Yeah, and and Popsi did get that way with their headline. So we'll we'll get there in a minute, but I owe it to you for turning me onto this actually. You sent me this article, so thank you James. It's like right up my alley. It's planetary science, which I love, and it's spacecraft that visit planet, which I especially love. And then it's also plasma, which yes. I do. I wouldn't say that I love, but I do. It's the Charlie Kelly triple threat 
Plasmas, spacecraft, planetary science. This actually might be probably the most, mm, one of the most relevant episodes that we will do to like my own area of expertise, which I should not say up front because then when you see how poorly I present it, it's going to be embarrassing, but. That's not true. You know a lot about this. I'm going to, I'm going to make a stand as a paper boy and toot your horn, Charlie. For those of you, you who are listening and don't know, Charlie is studying uh, basically space plasmas as a way to enable new spacecraft to explore destinations that we haven't been to yet, like Neptune, for example. And Charlie, when I sent you this article, as you remember, because I sent it to you, I was like, dude, this is the start for your career. All these NASA scientists, like the ones who were the principal investigators on or I guess the one who is the principal investigator for New Horizons. It takes like 30 years. It's your full career for one mission. So I think, Charlie, you should go for a full career on Neptune. Dude, it totally is my dream to like send a spacecraft to Neptune or Uranus. Neptune preferably because it looks cooler. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, like that's that's kind of the gist that they get to in this paper and in the news articles interviewing the scientists who publish it is like, we found this thing from data, you know, 30 odd years ago. And it's so well, it's so not well understood that we could never possibly like pull any more out of this data. Or sorry, that we could never possibly like really understand this unless we just send another spacecraft there. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, yes, that is, that is the call to action. And it seems like a lot of NASA work going on right now is like, you know, they do these things called the decadal survey, where mm -hmm. every decade they put together a list of like reports and suggestions about what science should be focused on over the next decade. And um, for like solar system exploration, I think Uranus and Neptune are basically at the top of that list. So like Pluto was at the top of that list a couple of decadal surveys back when they started New Horizons. Okay. And that's, and that's how we got to that point. Um, now they're looking at Uranus and Neptune and saying, these are really the final frontiers in our solar system. You know, if you exclude like totally way out there, like planet nine and all that. But um, within our own solar system, like we've explored all these planets very well. We've even explored some moons much more closely than we've even seen Uranus and Neptune. I mean, those two planets. We've we landed did. on Titan. We've landed on Titan. We like... Uranus, you'll see in this paper, like we did one flyby of it in 1986 using 1970s technology that lasted 45 hours. And that's it. It's insane to think that technology is almost 50 years old. Like, think about how, think about the science. Can you just, can we just all just pause and think about the science for a second? Yes, let's take a moment of silence for the science. But seriously, I mean, Europa is going to be old news in 10 years. <laughs> and we're gonna need yeah. somewhere else to visit and i yeah. think neptune will be there and i hope you're at the helm yeah uh we're such we're such europa hipsters on this podcast dude europa is not even cool anymore yeah they haven't even like secured funding to get past like powerpoint slides we're like oh, for, it's not for europa yet. no they're like no, building I've, a spacecraft <laughs> i know europa yeah. clipper but not the europa lander yet oh yeah yeah but europa is such a boomer destination dude i know we're looking for a zoomer destination here. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe we can zoom with the spacecraft. Ooh, zoom's yes. going to be so big that like they will establish intersolar system communications. Yes, 
Zoom is our new overlord. Uh, anyway, so this article that you sent me was from the New York Times. Headline is Uranus ejected a giant plasma bubble during Voyager 2's visit. I have to interject here and say I did read through this article briefly and it was horrible. Like the author must have just been giggling to him or herself as they wrote it because like Uranus was the subject of like so many sentences that were just immature jokes if you read them out loud. Yeah, well, the other headline that I have is from Popular Science. Uranus blasted a gas bubble 22,000 times bigger than the Earth. Well, I should be reading it as Uranus blasted a gas bubble because that's clearly how they wanted us to read it. And then the subtitle on the Popular Science one is It happened back in 1986, but it could happen again. Which, after we go through the paper, you'll see that that's just a ridiculous sub, like just a ridiculous clickbait subtitle. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. It's just frustrating. The science is so cool. And yeah, maybe they didn't mean to do it in the New York Times article, but it felt like a, like they were baiting the readers a little bit. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And I, I honestly like I make it a point of calling it Uranus, Uranus because yeah. just because like people will just take the opportunity to giggle if you if you let them. So, well, literally, it's like they may decide the destination for a mission between Uranus and Neptune. Only based on public perception. Dude, it's true. Like, the two are, you know, interchangeable is, like, to, you know, a strong word. But, like, they're very similar. And studying one tells you a lot about the other. And so, you're right. Like, Neptune Neptune is just a cooler destination, you know? It's got a cooler picture up there already. People think Uranus is just a weird, you know, pale blob. But Neptune also has some pretty interesting features that differentiate it from Uranus, right? Like... It's Neptune that's tilted on its side. No, in terms of Ur- its Uranus is the one that's tilt. Its rotation axis is tilted like ninety degrees or something. Um, but Neptune okay. does have the moon Triton, which I think is like a watery or like a frozen one of these like frozen moons that could have some thermal activity going on beneath the surface. So I think that okay. right now, right now, uh, there's actually a mission called Trident that is in like the final competitive stage of being selected. That would do a flyby at Neptune and visit the moon Triton. So um, I think that Neptune is like f- much further along in terms of missions that could go there. Oh, wow. Okay. That's fascinating. Can I go on a classic James slightly related tangent here real quick? I insist. Okay. So I'm taking our quarter just started, our academic quarter. I'm taking a French class. And first French class was, it was fine online. But it's a it's a like French business class, French business culture and vocabulary. This was fascinating, and it's related to the word trident. Okay. This is definitely a James tangent, but go ahead. So the word trident, you know, if you imagine it, a three-pronged fork, basically. Horrible origin used to be used to poke slaves and workers to get them to work more. Turns out that the word trident is also etymologically the origin of the word travail in French, which is to work. Wait a second. So the word for work comes from the the weapon, not the other way around? Yes. Dude, that's really weird. At least, you know, my source is my French teacher and I haven't validated this at all. I haven't even Googled it, but I'm going to pass it on because 
Even if not, it's a good story. Okay, that's pretty interesting. That's like how the color orange, the word for the color comes from the fruit, not the other way around. Fascinating. Yeah, totally. That's one of my favorite fun facts. Wow. Charlie, you gotta get you we gotta get you to more parties, man. <laughs> yeah, well you too. You're the one talking about French etymology. I think dude, yeah. Parties couldn't handle us. <laughs> okay. So back on. Th- this news seems to be originating from a blog post on uh, NASA Goddard's website. Okay. And it's and it's titled, Revisiting Decades-Old Voyager 2 Data, Scientists Find One More Secret. And what's interesting is that this was published on March 25th, 2020, but it's about a paper that was actually published on August 9th, 2019. So the paper that we're going to be talking about today was published, uh, you know, nine months ago. Wow. Do you know... Do you have any sense for why there was such a delay? No. Like, they just, no one noticed it when it was published, and then NASA made a blog post, and then people noticed it. So, I don't know why the blog post came out now, but hmm. they I'm sure they're needed. looking for things to write at home, yeah. Yeah. Cool. But also, gives me this feeling of, like, dang, how many interesting papers do we miss just all the time because no one wrote a blog post about it? Oh, so many. Like, uh, Everyone's science is, you know, almost everyone's science is super interesting. Yeah. But if, you know, if it's not getting reported on, then most people will never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that the paper is published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, and it's called Voyager 2 Constraints on Plasmoid-Based Transport at Uranus. And the authors are Gina DiBraccio and Daniel Gershman, who I think are, I think both of them are planetary scientists at Goddard. I think... Um, Gina DiBraccio is actually the, I think she might be like the principal investigator on um, the Mars atmosphere and volatile, like the MAVEN spacecraft. I feel like I've seen her name before from other papers that we've done or from some like space documentary. Oh, dude, maybe she's in the planets. Oh, if you haven't seen this before, it's on Amazon Prime. You have a lot of time right now because everyone's at home. Check it out, the planets. It's probably I think it's like ten dollars to buy all the episodes, but it's like, worth dude, it's it. so worth it. It's like it's planet P- PBS Nova documentary. It's, it's like planet best. Earth, but for the solar system. Yes, it's like planet not Earth. Yeah. Uh, okay, so she's the sorry the project scientist of NASA's Maven mission. Um, so she's a you know very you know high up planetary scientist. Cool. Okay. Also, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at the fact that this data that they were examining was from January 1986. Voyager 2 launched in 1977, which is yeah. nuts. And yeah. so, you know, here we are 34 years later, still publishing papers about it. Yeah. So this is this is the interesting part is like how they found this. So, um, so Voyager 2, I'm assuming everyone knows what Voyager is, but if they don't, it's this space probe that was sent out to do kind of a grand tour of, of a bunch of planets in our solar system and then fling out into deep space. And like it's it's made headlines actually just recently because uh, Voyager 1 and 2 have both crossed the boundary of the solar system, quote unquote. They've left, you know, they're heading into the Oort cloud or maybe they've left the Oort cloud. I forget what it is. But so they're still out there still giving us data. But they launched in 1977, like you said, and Voyager 2 did a flyby of Uranus in 1986, and it lasted for 45 hours. 
Mm-hmm. And these two scientists um, just recently, they were, they were looking to put together like uh, potential questions for if we were going to go back to Uranus. Like, what do we know and what could we learn more about? And its magnetic field is really interesting because it's tilted sideways, like you said. And so its interaction with the solar wind is a lot different than the other planets. And also like the, the rate of production of plasma on Uranus is a lot lower than other planets. So they want to understand what happens to that plasma after it's produced. So um, can we, that was a lot. Like, can we dive into that a little bit? So especially the part about the solar wind and Uranus being on its side. I didn't mean to cut you off, but. No, yeah, please ask questions. Um, so like Earth, for example, you can imagine our magnetic field is like up and down. So it doesn't point towards the sun, generally speaking, right? The the axis does not, no. Yes, the axis. So when we get hit with the solar wind, which is basically, as I understand it, it's just the particles that the sun is spitting out. Yeah. Our magnetic field is strongest, like, looking towards the sun. So that sort of helps the Earth deflect the particles around it. We get some particles that enter from the north and south, but since those aren't, like, directly looking at the sun not as many enter in and so they kind of get deflected around the earth and spread and then they keep traveling out into the universe yeah i mean the best way to visualize this is like i mean honestly you should just google magnetosphere and because it's going to be really hard to explain otherwise Mm -hmm. but like the planetary magnetic field kind of creates this bubble it's like you know an imaginary looking bubble because it's like magnetic field lines which don't technically exist but but then when the the solar wind comes in and the solar wind is just made up of a bunch of like charged particles. So protons and electrons and charged particles will interact with the magnetic field and it can actually like kind of blow the magnetic field away a little bit. And so you end up with this basically like the magnetic field creates a wake in that solar wind. So you can think of like, you know, picture like a comet barreling through the atmosphere and it has kind of that long tail behind it of like you know hot material Mm -hmm. now blow that up to like a bazillion you know bazillion times the size and the earth will actually create like a long wake like that and kind of have this tail and the magnetic field will actually kind of stream out behind behind the planet you know on the side facing away from the solar wind yes okay So so uranus has that but it just looks different because it's flipped on its side. And so it just makes for much more complicated dynamics. More complicated dynamics, but then it not Uranus basically receiving like a ton of direct radiation and like the solar energetic particles because they're basically being channeled by its magnetic field like directly into the planet, aren't they? Uh, so not exactly. It's not it's not as simple as that. Like whereas Earth, you know, the magnetic field is rotating in such a way that it looks symmetric. Like it doesn't matter which way it's facing for the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uranus is just rotating so that it changes all the time, which is what oh. makes it complicated. So it's not necessarily oh. like facing straight at the sun and it always looks that way. It's just like it's just moving in a much different way. Interesting. Okay. So it's like you said, it's it's more dynamic than Earth's. Right. It's like, you know, it's like throwing a curveball versus like a knuckleball, you know, kind of. <laughs> but <laughs> well, I, get I just the, mean like I get the idea, the way it's going to interact with the things around, you know, like a, a curveball is spinning and because the flow around it is moving in a certain way, it's going to move a different way. And there's just different dynamics at play. I was just speaking on behalf of our 
audience who doesn't know about baseball. Mm. Like me. I clearly don't know about baseball. <laughs> no, no, no. It makes sense. So anyway, it, I don't want to get too bogged down in that. The point is Uranus is weird. We don't know much about it. And so these scientists were thinking, like, what can we learn? And so they downloaded all of the the magnetic field data that was measured by Voyager 2. And I guess the way this data had been an analyzed before was that they would average it over very long time intervals, like they'd take a sample every couple minutes, and they would look at kind of these long timescale phenomena and report on that. But what the authors did here is that instead they looked at it at basically at two-second time intervals. So every two seconds they take a sample instead of every couple minutes. Okay. And they found that there was like a lot more going on when you zoom in on the data this way. And specifically they found this one little like this one little like zigzag in the data that occurred over about a minute, I think. And they were like, we recognize, like they recognized that immediately as uh, this thing called a plasmoid. What is a plasmoid? So a plasmoid is, it's kind of just like a self-contained like bubble of plasma. And, you know, we mentioned before that in this magnetosphere, on the backside of the planet, everything's kind of blowing away and it's creating this long kind of tail. Um, what you can actually have is magnetic fields will, they'll kind of break apart and then reconnect. And the best way to visualize this is think of like a lava lamp. And oh, like, you know sweet. how, you know how like that, you know, blob of lava will kind of like come up and then it'll sort of pinch off at one point. And then at that point where it pinches, suddenly like it separates and now it becomes its own blob. Yes. Think of that like magnetic field lines and plasma. That's so cool. I always had this feeling that lava lamps were secrets to bigger mysteries in the universe. Yes. I mean, it's totally different physics that's like <laughs> defining why that happens. But like that's a great way to visualize it. And you can see if you go to, yeah, um, you know, we'll post, we can, we can post the article and uh, like figure one just shows kind of schematically what's happening. And you can see like it looks exactly like that. It's like this big giant thing of plasma that kind of pinches off the way that like a lava lamp would. Cool. Okay. So they think that this was a plasmoid then. This basically discrepancy in the data that was collected by Voyager. Uh, yes. That, so that's they step through and they kind of argue why they think it's a plasmoid and what it means. And um, essentially what the measurement was, was that like they crossed, they crossed this region where the magnetic field suddenly got weaker. It just like, it just dipped down. Much and faster dipped, than they were expecting then. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and you can even see like in the data, it's going along at some like, at some rate that's changing slowly. And then suddenly it's like, whoop, drops down and then, and then goes back up. Okay. To what mm. it was doing before. And what that tells them is that there's plasma there. Because... Plasma and magnetic fields are kind of like two parts of the same thing. Like they need to, they need to balance each other out. And so if you have more plasma somewhere, it means you'll have a weaker magnetic field. And if you have uh, stronger magnetic field somewhere, you'll have less plasma because they actually exert pressure on each other. Oh, really? Okay. So they yeah. they achieve some sort of equilibrium. Uh, yeah, you can think of it that way. Like on these. I think in these regimes that they're interested in, where there's very little plasma and the magnetic field is very weak, yes, they need to exist in some sort of a, uh, you would consider it a pressure balance. So if one of them increases in pressure, then the other one has to decrease in pressure. Hmm. That is really interesting. 
cool. Yeah, and that's also that's also gives you a sense of like how the solar wind can kind of blow the magnetic field away because they exert pressure on each other. And that's why you know, and that's why you can really actually think of it like wind because it's going to it's going to blow those things away with a pressure force. Wow. That's really cool. Okay. So Voyager's traveling through Voyager 2, I should say, is traveling through and it detects this dip and they think that it's a plasmoid. But what does that start to tell them then about Uranus? Like why is this big science? So it's really cool because the plasma in that plasmoid is now it's no longer like it's no longer attached to the planet. Like it pinches off like, you know, a lava bubble and now it's just free and it's going to blow away. So that actually means that it's like a, a process by which Uranus loses its atmosphere. And this is actually like something that we observe at Earth. We've seen it at Mercury. We've seen it at Mars. Uh, Jupiter and Saturn. So we know that this is a thing that happens and we know that it is a way that planets lose their atmosphere. Oh man. I mean, and that's a huge problem from the perspective of a living being on a planet that is close to the sun and that relies on my planet's atmosphere. I mean, this is basically why people think that Mars is more or less currently inhabitable, right? Whereas millions or billions of years ago, it probably had water and was more supportive to life. Uh, yeah, this is a way that, that Mars, this is one of the processes by which Mars could have lost its atmosphere. And it's, you know, it's not one or the other. It's like, as we'll see kind of later when they calculate out, um, this is like one contributing factor to how the atmosphere gets lost. Okay. Okay. But it's sort of informing, like, as we're learning more about the life cycles of planets, it's giving us an idea of like, once a planet is formed, what happens to it during its existence. Yeah, totally. And it helps, you know, it's the first time that we've observed this at Uranus. So it's really telling us like, well, we know that this happens to other planets. How is Uranus losing its atmosphere? Oh, a big, you know, a big factor is these plasmoid things. Hmm. Cool. Sort of as we sketch out the big Venn diagram of like what's similar and different between planets. Yes, totally. Cool. Um, So they were able to like do a little bit of modeling to kind of I guess, like quantify this data and figure out what it really means. Obviously, there are huge uncertainties associated with this. Like you just had one spacecraft zip through this one trajectory. It made a a measurement over the course of one minute that uh, now we're going to try and infer global loss rate of the atmosphere, you know, over all time, which is, you know, there's going to be huge errors on this, but it's kind of like an, a first crack at saying, here's what we think might be going on. Yeah, may as well. So the plasmoid that they flew across, um, they estimated that it was, a, they estimated that like the, the distance they traveled across was about two times the radius of Uranus. So like the distance, the distance that they went through this plasmoid was like the size of Uranus itself. Can you, wow, just for, for scale, how much bigger than Earth is Uranus? Uh, Uranus is four times the size of Earth, diameter-wise. Wow. Yeah. So we're talking about it traversed a piece of plasma bubble over a distance of you know eight times the size of the Earth. That's pretty crazy. And That's a big plasma bu- bubble. Well, so that's just the distance that Voyager 2 was in it. So then they used that and other estimates 
to kind of put together a picture of how big they think the plasmoid actually was because they don't you know they it's very likely they didn't just go straight through the middle of it yeah and so they estimated that it was actually cylindrical in shape and that the cylinder had a diameter of between 8 and 16 times the radius of uranus wow okay yeah so it's this giant cylinder of plasma that's like many times bigger than the planet itself um, and I think they're sitting out at a distance of like 50 times the radius of Uranus right now. Um, so they're still very far from the planet, but. Dang, that's huge. Yeah. Well, now, I mean, everything's big on a planetary scale, but still. I know. Um, now here's the crazy part. If I were to tell you that they measured an object in space, which is a cylinder that has a diameter that is 16 times the size of a planet. How much would you think that that weighed? Like in kilograms? In kilograms. Ooh. Uh, you can give me an order of magnitude if you want. Okay, on the order of a million kilograms. No, it weighed, they estimated it weighs 430 plus or minus 270 kilograms. What? Yeah, it weighs like less than a car that's insane isn't that so insane so that gives you an idea of like how sparse this plasma is out here wow do you have any idea what the density of the plasma is like before or after this plasmoid uh yeah so they and these numbers kind of like you know maybe this isn't interesting to other people but it was interesting to me as a plasma physicist because when we're talking about plasma densities in the lab we're talking about like you know, 10 to the 10 to the 14 particles per centimeter cubed. So like, you know, and that's like not even that high of a density mm -hmm. in this paper, like the density of the plasma around Uranus, they're talking about like 0.02 particles per centimeter cubed. Oh, okay. Wow. So like you're talking about like, you know, in any given like area, you know, if, if I'm sitting here and looking around, outside my body like i'm only going to see one particle of plasma nearby that's it's insane or, that's or like a like couple you know relevant i know it's insane that and it's insane that you can even measure that that is like there you know yeah with any accuracy but so it gives you a sense too of why they need to why like why their measurement over you know over a full diameter of uranus is the way that they're able to to see this like you couldn't measure this if you just like zipped right across it like you wouldn't even really notice this probably no no not at all i mean that makes sense you gotta measure a huge volume to even get some sense of how many particles there are yeah so they estimated yeah the mass of that whole plasmoid that got pinched off and lost to space is around 430 kilograms so like this is cool like modeling that was done saying hypothetically if uranus is losing plasmoids which we don't know because we've never measured it they say that um, the occurrence rate of that would be about once every 17 hours. And now this paper comes along and says, hey, we just measured a plasmoid. So we know that it is there. Mm -hmm. This modeling estimated once every 17 hours. We made one measurement of a plasmoid in the 15-hour window that we, were, that we spent in the regime where we would find it. So they say like, A, that kind of confirms that they were right. You're going to lose one plasmoid every 17 hours. And then B, if you assume that, then you can actually estimate how fast Uranus is losing its atmosphere through plasmoids. Hmm. Sorry, that was like such a bad, that was such a weird way to explain that. 
No, that makes sense. That's really interesting. So using that like once every 17 hours and 430 kilograms in their plasmoid, they figure out that Uranus is losing its atmosphere at a rate of about um, 7 plus or minus 4 grams per second through plasmoids. Wait, wait, wait. Say that one more time. So it's losing the atmosphere at a rate of 7 grams per second through plasmoids. 7 grams per second. Yeah. I mean... That's pretty fast. I mean, it's fascinating. It's like I could measure seven grams. I have a sense of what seven grams is. It. Do you have it like a? I know we've talked about this for Mars, but can you give us any stats that like again put that into perspective compared to other planets? Um, I'm not sure about compared to other planets, but what they do say is that Uranus, they've estimated that like the internal production rate is, I think, around twenty grams per second. So it what it does say is that this is not the only process by which it's losing plasma. This is like a major contributor. It contributes to about a third of the loss rate. Okay. But there's other stuff going on. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, that's still significant. But so it's kind of funny to think like it's, just, it's losing 20 grams of atmosphere per day. But I guess you extrapolate. No, per second. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoops. Per second. Okay, so that, what is there, 3,600 seconds per hour. Do a little math here. 24 hours per day times 20 grams. Okay, so it's losing like 1,700 kilograms of atmosphere per day. Wow, that's kind of a lot. Like every day? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to check real quick. That adds up. How much atmosphere does Earth lose per day? And also to put that into perspective, Uranus weighs 9 times 10 to the 25th kilograms. So, like, it sounds like a lot, but it's going to take a very long time to lose all that atmosphere. Holy cow. Okay. So that's 1. That's 1,700 kilograms per day. I'm looking at physics.org 2016. They say... That we lose about one kilogram per second. On Earth? Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, th- I seem to recall that was kind of the number that we had for Mars, too. That, like, over its history, it lost something like a kilogram or two kilograms per second. Jeez. That's scary. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, we're worried about coronavirus over here, but no one's talking about the atmosphere that's just leaking into space. <laughs> I know. we got to plug it up. Yeah, we got to plug it up. Well, yeah, that's cool. So that's losing cool. They atmosphere. Even, they even have a sense of that. Yeah, it is cool. But, you know, ultimately, like, those numbers are definitely going to be revised if we ever send a spacecraft to Uranus. Yeah. So, okay, I just have to ask, since you're the the uh, resident planetary expert, what if you... This is All right, we can consider this your interview to be the P.I., for the next mission to Uranus or Neptune. Like, what would you okay. hope to learn? What would you hope to learn? Other than know. getting better measurements of that. I don't know. I mean, you keep saying like, oh, Charlie, you should be PI of this mission one day. But like, PI is I like know. a science job. I'm an engineer. Damn. I don't know what you want well from said. me. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm just going to build the spot. Sh- I just want to build a ship that goes there. I'm also vicariously living through you. So. Um, no, I mean... Like, 
the answer is like, if this is what we found with 34-year-old data that has already been poured over, and we find this totally new thing like, hey, we just discovered the first ever plasmoid loss of atmosphere at Uranus, and that was like a, just a complete by chance that we flew through it. Uh, mm-hmm. So here, here's the way that um, Gina DiBraccio put it. She said, imagine if one spacecraft just flew through this room and tried to characterize the entire Earth. Obviously, it's not going to show you anything about what the Sahara or Antarctica is like. So that's basically all we've done at Uranus. Like yeah. everything that we know about it has been just zipping by one time over one day. Like just think of, you know, if you only got to see Earth for one day, now compare that to everything we actually know about Earth. Like you can just you might imagine not even what see... is going to change. You might not even see the ice caps or Greenland or the desert or anything like that. You wouldn't even know what you should start to measure. Right. Like we just have no clue. Yeah. So, I That's mean, good point. That ultimately relies on like that, you know, the, the person listening to that argument like cares that we learn about Uranus. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people, it can, it's very easy to just say like, well, who cares? Like it doesn't really change our lives, which, you know, is not wrong, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like for science, you know? For science. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, I'm all I'm all on board. You can take my taxpayer money. <laughs> Good. Uh if it were a democratic process to vote you into the chief engineer role for the mission, you would have my vote. Um maybe in like forty years, but <laughs> I think I think you would be the only person voting for a fourth year grad student as the chief engineer of a any spacecraft well i'm saying you know my future vote plus some nasa perks that i would expect in return but oh yeah i'll get you like some stickers yeah mission stickers i'm talking mission polo t-shirt oh i'll maybe like a nice lanyard damn yeah i'll even get my girlfriend to vote for you with that (laughs) okay okay all right so that's yeah. basically it for the, the, the paper. I really enjoyed it. Plasma physics and planetary science and Voyager. Yeah. What's not to love? A um, little bit of everything. Would you say after reading this paper, you are intrigued at all to go back and watch the planets documentary about the outer planets again? Yes, totally. Dude, even without reading this paper, I'm always intrigued to watch that documentary again. Dude, I wish we could get a PBS sponsorship for this. For those of you who are not from the United States, PBS is the public broadcasting station. They're like the non-cable, non-satellite, free channel that everybody gets. But they do like great documentaries. They have great shows. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe we could, maybe we could do like a PBS Paperboys collab. Ooh, yes. I love it. I'd also love to get Rick Steves on here someday. It's kind of a pipe dream. Who's that? Rick Steves. Dude, he's a PBS superstar. He also lives in Washington State. He really? He's been traveling since he was like a teenager, and he does the like Rick Steves travel show, and he goes to all these places around the world. And he's like just passionate about travel and culture. It's great. Wow. Okay. Maybe we'll get him to co-host an episode. Yeah, I think if an alien showed up on Earth and they're like, "All right, tell me about your solar system and your planet," I'd be like, "Okay." I'm not going to do a great job. Here is Rick Steves travel documentaries about planet Earth. And here are the planet documentaries about its solar system. That's all you need. Wow. So you you nominate Rick Steves as 
our like human ambassador. Yeah, dude, watch one episode of Rick Steves Travels and you'll be like, it's an easy choice. Okay. Wow. I'm what a great sales pitch. Yeah. You tr- uh, you essentially you trust this man with the fate of humanity. Yeah. I mean, I you know, it's it's hard to pick anybody else. <laughs> okay. I mean, not like Carl Sagan or Well, Carl Sagan's dead. And he already, you know, he's already been an ambassador. The golden disc is out there. I'd be like, all right, you know, if you want an appendix, go find Voyager. Take the golden <laughs> yeah. disc. Yeah. Hey, if you blow us up, just go find this thing. It'll have some more stuff for you. Yes. You can listen to Chuck Berry. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Wow. So, High praise. All right. Yeah. I'm definitely going to check that out. I think we should probably cut this off before we, before we go too far into our rabbit holes here. <laughs> That's true. Well... We definitely appreciate you listening to this episode and following us through all the rabbit holes back to where we started. Uh, if you have a lot of time on your hands with this confinement globally, check us out on social media. Tell a friend if they're bored. You can find us Twitter, Instagram, at PaperboysPod is our handle. Yeah, we love interacting with fans. So, Dude, And the good thing is that we have a backlog of, this is now our 85th episode. So if you tell a friend, yes. like if, if you have friends who are sitting home bored with their coronavirus, twiddling their thumbs, tell them to check us out. Like they can start at episode one and they'll be listening for months. Yeah. 85 hours of, you know, objectively high quality content. <laughs> yes. Very objective. Uh, <laughs> you should also please check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash paperboyspod. Uh, we mentioned this month we are doing an episode about the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which is um, highly topical, I think, right now. So uh, it is a little bit delayed. It's coming out a few days late because I was sick yesterday. We didn't get a chance to record when we wanted to. Um, so sorry for that. But that means you have a chance to get on the Patreon, sign up uh, before that episode comes out. And we also mentioned that we're going to donate this month's Patreon proceeds to a good cause uh maybe that'll go to a food bank here in seattle well once we once we actually record that episode we'll figure out where that's going but just know that it will be going to something good yeah so if you've been on the fence uh it's a great time to check us out on patreon check out the bonus episodes yeah oh and thank you to our new supporters on patreon we had some some people who signed up in the last week or so so yes thank you for joining and thanks for listening Hope you join us again next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Thanks for listening.